Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14, and then verses 23 through 28. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of his creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? It is necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the one true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, why are there wars and rumors of wars, injustices, racism, hatred, slander, perversions, greed, sorrow, and a myriad of other depravities in this world? Why, when uh, in some ways the world seems to get better, does it also seem to be getting worse in other ways? Why, uh, on the one hand, can we have at our disposal all the cumulative knowledge of human existence about how to be happy, all housed in a device that's in our pocket, and yet at the same time have ever-increasing rates of depression and anxiety? Why, in a land of prosperity like the world has never seen before, is there also poverty and exclusion? Why, in a time when many acknowledge the dignity of all human beings, do we at the same time normalize denying that dignity to others, from the womb to the tomb? Why, after all these years on this planet and having tried countless philosophies and ideologies, do these things still abound within, human, uh, within humanity? Now, of course, uh, many have attempted to answer those questions as to why. You know, all the great world religions and philosophies and even uh, social scientists uh, have answers to these questions. 
for example, uh, many Eastern religions believe that the problems of this world result as uh, come from the, um, our attachments to the pleasures of this world. Uh, for some in the world of psychology, our problem is rooted in our wrong conception about what is right and wrong, and therefore we need to be freed uh, from many commonly held notions about morality, all of which is done in the name of mental health. Uh, for some in the social scientists, uh, sciences, uh, human dignity demands human autonomy. And when people are not free to make their own decisions, their dignity is undermined. And of course, related to that, others believe our problems are the results of power structures that oppress other people and must be deconstructed in order for people to find liberation. Now, what's interesting about all of those different perspectives is that the Christian faith actually affirms much of those assessments of the problem. You know, the Bible agrees with many world religions and psychologies and social theorists. The difference, however, is that while many uh, have these alternative views, and those views can be helpful in attempting to diagnose what our problems might be, they all completely miss the core reason for the breakdown within humanity. They all miss the core reasons for why such depravities in this world that we mentioned continue to abound. Because from the biblical perspective, sin is the core and central reason for all the problems that we face. And Hebrews 9 considers how that problem can be rightly addressed. And so what I want to do today, I want to take a look at sin and understand a bit about what the Bible says about sin. And so we're going to do that by looking at the nature of sin, the consequence of sin, and then the redemption from sin. So first, let's consider the nature of sin. Um, and how can we best understand the concept of sin? Uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways to define sin. The Bible addresses sin in many different uh, categories. Uh, but the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is historically a teaching tool for learning the doctrinal standards of our church tradition, um, it's a question and answer kind of uh, tool. And in the Westminster Shorter, Shorter Catechism, one of the questions, question 14, is what is sin? And the definition that the catechism gives is this. Is that sin is any want or conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Uh, another way to say it would be that sin is a rejection of God's intended purpose for his creation, and it's a refusal to acknowledge him as the only giver of standards to which we are all subject. It's our rebellion against him in his law. And that he as creator of all things, has the right to determine that which is right and wrong. And then with, uh, with, uh, within creation, we as hum humanity, we have agency to choose to align with his creative purposes or not. And sin is our refusal to align ourselves with his commands and creative purposes. And we know this to be true, but when rules aren't followed, or something is not used in the ways that it should be used, eventually chaos ensues. You know, I cannot use my phone as a hammer without expecting complete breakdown and chaos. 
at some point. And among the many consequences of sin is chaos, absolute chaos. One reality of sin is that it leads to complete and incoherent understandings of our problem. It clouds our vision for being able to rightly see what is happening. In fact, sin leads us so often to believe that we are in the right when we are actually deeply, deeply wrong. I think one of the, the best uh, biblical articulations of this, the incoherence that comes as a result of this rebellion against God is Isaiah 5, verse 20, which says this. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I mean, sin will cause us, that rebellion against the creative purposes of God, sin will cause us to see that which is darkness as light. It makes us incoherent. It makes us walking contradictions all the time. And because of uh, what we see in Roman, described in Romans 8, all creation is actually bound by this sin. And so everything that we touch, that we create, that we believe is impacted by the incoherency and the contradictions. Uh, let me just give you one example. And it's, it's an extreme example, but to make the point, let me give you one example. And I use this example largely because it's, it's a flashpoint in our culture. It's one that is, it's an issue that is hotly debated. And so consider what is it, what does it mean and what should it mean to be pro-life? Yeah, the other, uh, the other night we started a, uh, as a family, we started watching a, a new documentary called uh, Immigration Nation. It's a look <clears throat> at um, ICE and all of the, uh, the current actions and tactics being utilized by, by ICE. And in episode one, it addresses the zero tolerance policy from a couple of years ago. This policy, of course, being one that changed uh, ICE pursuing undocumented immigrants who were engaging in cr criminal activity, which is what they had been doing. And then it shifted some of their activity, not only to just uh, pursuing those engaging in criminal activity, but also pursuing anyone uh, who was undocumented. And in particular, they focused on the increased separation of children from their parents. Now, I, I'm not, I don't want to get into the political debate about, uh, about ICE and some of the tactics or even the zero policy, uh, uh, zero tolerance policy. That's not the point. But I, I bring it up for this reason. <clears throat> this this uh, particular policy highlighted the incoherency that so often occurs when we're living in this sin-filled world. I mean, what's interesting is that the very people that God calls us to love and to serve and care for, care for are treated inhumanely, especially the children. Right? You will never convince me that those who had, uh, that adding to the trauma of those who had just traversed these long, dangerous journeys deserve to be treated as they were. And it's pretty well documented that there's a lot of horrific stories about how these people, who were not criminals, 
who were not coming to engage in illegal activity. They were simply trying to find some security and safety. The way that they were treated, the way their children were treated, you'll never convince me that it was just or right. That's a bit of a side note. But of course, this issue is a hotly uh, uh, debated political issue. Right? It created a political firestorm. But here's the point. Here's what I'm trying to get at. It really produced for me a very jarring incoherence emerge, particularly as you consider what it means to be pro-life. I mean, how is it that for some, they demand the human dignity of the unborn, and rightly so, but so easily backed a policy that separated children from desperate parents seeking safety and security for their children at the borders, all in the name of maintaining law and order. How is that pro-life? I mean, sin makes us completely incoherent. It makes us walk in contradictions. And on the flip side, of course, at least politically, there were many who rightly opposed the treatment of children at the border. But so that we're clear about how sin makes us completely incoherent, how is it that one can demand the dignity of children who are separated from their desperate parents at the border, but at the same time aggressively demand human autonomy to choose to deny the dignity of life to the unborn, especially in unrestricted ways, like we're seeing more and more now? How is that pro-life? I mean, sin makes us completely incoherent, walking contradictions. And I realize that both of those uh, issues are complex issues that require nuance and compassion and empathy. There are no uh, easy solutions for how to handle immigration or how to address the problems produ that's producing these migrants. There's no uh, easy solutions for reducing abortions or addressing the problems that seemingly necessitate abortions. However, where there is sin, there will also be incoherency, inconsistencies. And that's the point. And of course, probably more problematic is the reality that we justify our positions with arguments that seem noble and righteous to us. But from God's perspective, we've called darkness light. And in the end... The arguments that we give so often fail the test with only one question that ultimately really matters. Namely, is this God's intention for creation or is it incoherent sin? I mean, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Of course, I know that I, I noted complicated issues, but we experience this incoherency all the time. We know lying is wrong, but we lie. We know gossip is wrong, but we gossip. We know it's wrong to be proud, and yet we are proud. We are walking contradictions. It makes me think of Romans 7, where Paul says, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I mean, does that resonate with anyone else? It certainly does for me. But he goes on to say, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living within me. Sin makes us incoherent, walking contradictions. Sin normalizes the incoherency.
And so that's at least an aspect of the nature of sin. But we also need to consider the consequences of it. That incoherency is not without consequence. And with all that said, let's get back to our passage. So here in Hebrews 9, especially in verses 13 and 14, uh, it's speaking of sacrifices uh, used to atone for or to pay for sin. And the author describes the blood of goats and calves and their blood being sprinkled for purification. Now, what exactly is happening there? Well, in particular, the author here is describing and reflecting on the Day of Atonement. Uh, in, in, in essence, Yom Kippur, or the, the Day of Atonement, was when the high priest, uh, who was the only one who could stand before God to represent the people, went into the Holy of Holies, which was a, a, a part of the temple, uh, where he once a year would make atonement for that year with the blood sacrifice for the sins of the people. And I know that for many, the whole notion of sacrifices is a completely archaic idea. However, it's important to note that the consequences of sin always requires payment. Always comes at a cost. You know, in order for us to maintain our incoherency and our desire to disassociate ourselves from God's purposes, Someone or something is going to pay for that incoherency, for that sin. You know, when we lie, though it might benefit us to do so, those being lied to pay a price by bearing the weights of no longer being able to trust. When we gossip, though it might make us feel good for the moment, those being talked about will pay a price by bearing the weights of betrayal. When we are proud, though we may feel superior and exalted for a time, those around us will pay a price by bearing the weight of rejection or marginalization. When we choose to prioritize our preferences and our comforts and our pleasure over the well-being of others, a price will be paid by those affected by our selfishness. Sin always results in payment of some kind. And now that, of course, is a payment that comes interpersonally or societally as a result of our sin. However, there's another kind of payment that comes uh, that we ought to be far more concerned about than just what happens interpersonally. Specifically, the payment and the consequences of sin being described in our passage, they don't primarily... Uh, speak to interpersonal or societal relations. Rather, the sacrifices and the payment being made is related to God himself. That sin comes at a price when we stand before our creator. And that price, according to Romans 6, that payment, the wages of sin, is death. Sin results in death. It results in physical death, Because in the end, sin is a rejection of how things ought to be, which results in chaos. And what greater chaos is there than than death itself? But it also results in a spiritual death because it's a rejection of the only true source of spiritual life, God himself. Sin is a rejection of what God intends, which is life. 
And so when we reject that life, of course, it leads to death. And while some might believe or assume that to be extreme or cruel, is it really, though? I mean, if God is the creator of all things, and if he is the giver and the sustainer of all life, and we refuse to live in alignment with his creation and acknowledge him as the giver of life, what else would we expect but death? If sin is a direct contradiction to that which gives life, what do we expect but death? Psalm 89 uh, has been um, a psalm that's been much in my, um, much that I've reflected much on it lately. It's been in my mind lately. And a portion of that uh, psalm states this, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, of God's throne. Now it's referencing, when referencing the throne, it's referencing God's rule and his reign over all things. And what that means then is that where there is unrighteousness and where there is injustice, those places and those who perpetuate such things are rejecting God's rule. And again, honest question. If one rejects God's rule and his determination about what is good and right and true and just, what then is to be expected? And God course, sees us in this situation. And so something, because of our disillusionment, because of our, uh, our incoherency, there needs to be something that jars us out of this disillusionment and assumptions about what comes through sin's incoherence. And sacrifice or payment is a way to remind us of the death that comes as a result of sin. And while the Day of Atonement served as many things, it certainly served as a reminder of the severity of sin. Because we do not take sin seriously, period. We call evil what good and good evil. And for God's people in the Old Testament, the shedding of blood on the Day of Atonement was a way of acknowledging the severity of the people's rejection of God as God. It was a public way of saying, do not forget that sin leads to death because there is always a price to pay for sin. Always. However, on the Day of Atonement, there was also beauty in the midst of this dark display of death. Because on the Day of Atonement, it was also a reminder that death was not coming to the people. It was going to the sacrifice. As opposed to death coming on them, God in his mercy allowed death to be brought to the sacrificed animal. Why? Because he loves his people. He desires that they realize the errors of their ways and that they return to him. And for those who take issue with the whole notion of God punishing sin or requiring these sacrifices, please see the reasons why he required these sacrifices. We are in a position of rebellion against God and, and all of his intention for creation. And it has consistently destroyed that which he called good, that he created as good. And he desires to bring us back to himself. I mean, think about how a loving parent attempts to deal with a destructively rebellious child. You know, the loving parents over and over and over again will try to call the child 
back from that rebellion. The parent uh, does whatever is necessary to remind the child of the severity of their error. But eventually, at some point, the parent, all the parent can do is attempt to woo the child back. I mean, the, the parent would even be willing to lay down their life to bring the child back to safely. But in the end, the child needs to willingly decide to lay down that rebellion in order to return. Or in the end, they have to just deal with the consequences that come as a result of the rebellion. And sacrifices are a way to remind us of the severity of our rebellion. They are a way to woo us back to God himself while we are still able to respond. They are an act of love toward those rejecting love. The problem, of course, with those sacrifices is that they were never sufficient, fully and completely sufficient. They had to be brought again and again and again and again because the price was never fully paid. But as we have seen throughout the book of Hebrews, everything that we see in the Old Testament is ultimately a foreshadowing of something far greater. And here in Hebrews 9, we see a greater sacrifice, a sacrifice that puts on even in greater ways the fullness of God's love. It's a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Let's look at that. Uh, let's look at that sacrifice. Let me reread for you verses 11 through 14. Uh, I think because they give clarity around what God is committed to in order to bring us back. It says this. But when God, or I'm sorry, when Christ came as high priest of all the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most high place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them as they are, as they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. I mean, do you track with what's being said there? Sin leads to death. But in his mercy, God established a sacrificial system that took the penalty of death from us and placed it on the sacrifice. But those were not ultimately sufficient and needed to be done over and over. And so in the same way that a parent who loves their rebellious child would lay down their life for their child to save their child, even while that child is still in rebellion, God also does the same. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes as the final and complete sacrifice. He comes to pay for sin in full. It is not a sacrifice that must be given over and over and over again, but as verse 28 tells us, Christ is offered once to bear the sins of many. 
The consequences of sin always come at a price that someone has to pay. And Jesus Christ, on the cross, takes that payment on himself, pays that penalty, or that, uh, that payment with his life, so that we might be redeemed and reconciled and secured and renewed in our relationship with God. Jesus on the cross is God dealing with our rebellion, calling us back to himself. And the resurrection of Jesus is God's promise that death, the death that awaits us, does not get the final say. For as we trust in Jesus, we too will experience the same resurrection power that he experienced. Sin and death are defeated on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. But this is not just a promise for the future. This is, there is also new life that is available even now. I mean, check out again verse 14. It says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Now, those acts that lead to death, they could uh, refer to actual acts of sin or the works that we've used to try to justify ourselves. But either way, the sacrifice of Jesus purifies us from the incoherency of sin. It helps us see through the fog, even now, so that we might finally live in light of the life given by God, so that we are now able to serve him rightly. We are now able to live in alignment with his intention for creation. And how does this happen happens by the eternal spirit. The same spirit that worked in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit who lives in those who trust in Jesus. And when we are trusting the spirit's work in us over time, we will see the incoherency of our sin dissipate from our lives. This is the process of sanctification and though we may never fully get free from the effects of this sin-filled world, we can be free from the consequences of our sin because Christ is our greater sacrifice, a sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you see us in our rebellion. You see us in the ways that we reject your intention for creation, your law, and your rule and reign. Uh, and Lord, uh, we thank you that you do not just dismiss us or disregard us in that rebellion, but that you are in pursuit of us, that you desire to call us back to yourself. And that sacrifices in the Old Testament were always a way of doing just that, of calling your rebellious people back to yourself. But we thank you, Lord, for the greater sacrifice that puts on full display the fullness and the depth of your mercy and your grace and your love, that being the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus. Would you, by your Spirit, help us to trust him more and more? And as we do, and as your Spirit works in us, may the incoherency of sin be removed from us, that we might be more and more aligned with your purposes 
for us, for this world, for your creation. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.